Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Dave, host of The Industrial Revolutions a podcast that details the incredible changes to our economies, political systems, social orders, environment, and more from over the past 250 years. So far on Pax Britannica, we've been learning a lot about the early days of the British Empire, including the intense political situations of the 16th and 17th centuries. But at the time, of course, Outside of Great Britain, the British Empire was little more than some plantations in Ireland and a few small colonies in the Americas. It was a blip on the radar compared to the massive Spanish, Portuguese, and Ottoman empires. Heck, there wasn't even a unified Britain yet. So how did this fractured island turn into the hegemonic global empire of the Victorian era? Well, a big part of it was the Industrial Revolution. The first Industrial Revolution, to be precise. It began in Great Britain and gave that country the military dominance and financial health it needed for imperial expansion. So, while all the religious debates and parliamentary battles and court intrigues of the Tudors and Stuarts were unfurling, there were also a lot of changes taking place in everyday life. Changes in agriculture, labor, finance, and scientific thought, which were all culminating into a grand economic transition. I want to thank Samuel for inviting me here to tell you all about it today. First, to understand Britain's long march into modernity, we need to go all the way back to the Black Death. As awful as it was for the people of the time, the Great Plague effectively ended the stagnant economic situation of the Middle Ages. With the size of the workforce cut maybe as much as in half, the value of labor jumped significantly. 
peasants were suddenly in a bargaining position, demanding lower rents and greater freedom of movement. Serfdom slowly died away. Meanwhile, with fewer mouths to feed, the prices of food dropped. Land became less valuable as a result. Some was allowed to just turn back into forest. Some was converted for other agricultural pursuits, like cattle grazing for beef and cheese, which, by the way, were now more affordable and created a higher protein diet, increasing work output. And sheep grazing for wool production. And as it turns out, Britain had a comparative advantage in wool. And since raising sheep required less manpower than cultivating crops, landowners more and more sought to convert their lands into pastures. Now, by the 16th century, the population had fully recovered in numbers from the days of the plague, but the ascent of wool production continued. Peasants were pushed off and fenced off from the lands they used to plant and harvest. This trend was called enclosure, enclosing the land, and by the 1670s, more than 825,000 acres of farmland had been enclosed. Nearly 300 villages were abandoned as a result. The government responded by giving some non-aristocrats their own land. These free, commoner farmers were called yeomen. Between the new farms owned by yeomen and the process of fencing off sheep grazing pastures, England was beginning to establish the right of private property, as we think of it today. As crop farming was replaced by sheep grazing, many rural English families put knitting frames in their homes, producing finished wool products which helped supplement their incomes. Merchants would buy wool and pay these families to spin and weave it. This cottage industry, organized by the so-called putting-out system, marked a major transitionary period. We call it proto-industrialization, or the Industrious Revolution. During this period, it seems that people were genuinely working harder and longer than they used to. Incomes increased, as did demand for new consumer goods. Among the fancy new consumer goods ordinary people were buying were things like plates and chairs. The growth of cottage industry also came during a period of mass migration, as refugees fled religious persecution in France and the incredible violence of the Thirty Years' War across the continent. These newcomers brought new textile production techniques and other commercial insights from across Europe to England. And it was textiles that would be the key industry to undergo revolution later on, in the giant mills of mass production, as the technologies for producing cloths and fabrics became more advanced. Additionally, as more land was converted to pasture, the availability of wood fell dramatically. By the mid-16th century, the scarcity of wood was beginning to alarm the English, as well as the Scots. It became a frequent topic of discussion in Parliament, which actually passed several acts to preserve timber resources, 
all to quite limited success. Wood was important for fires, not only to keep families warm in the winter, but also for a variety of economic activities, from metallurgy to brewing. There was an alternative to burning wood, of course. You could burn coal instead. And as it happens, Britain had ample coal resources. So much so that some historians believe it was the availability and geography of Britain's coal that allowed the Industrial Revolution to start there. Throughout the 17th century, the British significantly increased their coal output. As the need for coal grew, new solutions were needed for mining and transporting it. For example, by the 1660s, some mine operators started laying down strips of wood that could guide horse-drawn carts full of coal out of the mines. These were the first railways. Later in the 18th century, the peculiar Duke of Bridgewater would build a canal to transport coal from his mines to the growing textile towns and cities of Lancashire. So began a period called Canal Mania, when the Brits constructed some 4,000 miles of canals, allowing for faster commerce to keep up with the efficiencies of mass-produced textiles. And the more digging needed to extract coal, the more miners ran into the problem of flooding. So technological advances were made to improve the pumps draining the mines. These innovations led to the first modern steam engines. Now, in many ways, coal was not as good as wood. The chemical impurities would ruin a lot of the beer it helped brew and the iron it helped smelt. But brewers and iron workers figured out how to get around these problems by baking the coal first, thereby removing the impurities, creating a new substance called coke. Now, ever since the late Middle Ages, the demand for iron production was rising due to the growing importance of cannons and cannonballs in warfare. With coke, Britain's ironmasters could start producing better iron going into the 18th century and finding new uses for it, like sturdier machines and stronger building frames. From the 16th to 18th centuries, war helped lead to the principles of mass production too. Shipbuilders needed to develop more efficient sawmills. Gunsmiths needed to improve precision for interchangeability and mass assembly. Chemical manufacturers needed to improve their production techniques to supply the marching armies with soap, as well as dyes and bleaches for military uniforms. And, of course, textile manufacturers needed to mass-produce said uniforms. But these military-focused industrial endeavors weren't unique to Britain. They were happening in France, the Netherlands, and elsewhere, too. But there were developments unique to Britain. There were the changes to the labor market, to the agrarian order, and to the supply of natural resources. And there was the unique religious history. As you know, Henry VIII effectively made England Protestant. But not like super Protestant. 
not Martin Luther's brand of Protestantism, nor John Calvin's. The Anglican brand retained a lot of the functions and traditions of Catholicism, and it was reinforced by Elizabeth I, James I, Charles I, etc. Well, this obviously didn't sit well with the many Puritans of the time, those who wanted to take the Reformation much further. As I'm sure will be discussed in future episodes of Pax Britannica, the Puritans played a major role in the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. For example, the Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell, was famously Puritan. Now, as Samuel has been detailing lately, there were many reasons for these civil wars, but a major one was the differences of religion. Not only had Charles married a Catholic, he was supportive of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the same Archbishop of Canterbury who was protecting anti-Puritan ideas, like holidays, certain sacraments, and the Book of Common Prayer. Oxford and Cambridge were banned from teaching Calvin's predestination theology. All of this made the Puritans question whether Charles's reign was really legitimate in the eyes of God. So after they overthrew Charles, the Puritans were ready to remake the church in their own vision. But as it turned out, they didn't really share a common vision for how to do that. Some wanted a Presbyterian system, like had been done up in Scotland. Others, including Cromwell, wanted an independent Congregationalist system. Questions about precise theology tested their ability to cooperate. And new sects, like the Ranters and the Quakers, sprang onto the scene, further confusing things. Before any major religious reforms could take root, the monarchy was restored and the Puritans were suppressed. In 1662, the Act of Uniformity passed, restoring the Anglican norms of the church. Puritan ministers were then removed in a process called the Great Ejection. In 1664, the Act of Conventicles banned participation in churches that didn't conform to Anglicanism. A prison sentence would be the punishment for nonconformity. So, in one great swoop, the Puritans were both fractured and driven underground. They started to become known by different names, dissenters or nonconformists. Then came the Glorious Revolution. I'll leave the telling of that story for a future series of Pax Britannica episodes, but you need to know how major of a turning point it was. After William and Mary replaced James II, they approved the 1689 Act of Toleration. So long as you paid your tithes to the official church, you were free to practice your faith as you see fit. Now, this didn't apply to Catholics or Unitarians or atheists, certainly not. But it did apply to Presbyterians and Congregationalists, Quakers, Baptists, and other similar branches of dissenters. Yet, and this is a big yet, those dissenters did not have full civil rights. They couldn't join many of the old guilds, they couldn't serve in government, they couldn't stand for parliament, they couldn't become military officers, 
They couldn't send their kids to Oxford or Cambridge. They couldn't get ennobled. They could start their own businesses and engage in commerce, sure, but they couldn't climb the social ladder. But the thing about this social purgatory was, it was a great way to save money. Because it took money to do all that social ladder climbing. And they were living pretty sober, non-flashy lives. So what were they going to do with all the money they were making from their businesses? Well, they reinvested it in those businesses. If they had a successful blast furnace, they might use the profits to open another blast furnace. If they had a successful gun manufacturing business, they might use the profits to hire some more workers. If they had a successful textile operation going in their cottage, they might reinvest some of those profits into new, more productive machinery. All along the way, they accumulated a massive amount of what we call capital. This is how Britain's unique religious history gave us capitalism. When the Industrial Revolution came along in the 18th century, most industrialists came from these nonconformist Protestant denominations. And the Glorious Revolution made the Industrial Revolution possible in other ways too. As the Dutch stockholder, William of Orange, became King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, many Dutch ideas followed. Among them was a new bank, the Bank of England. So, among the Presbyterians who had fled Britain after the Wars of the Three Kingdoms was a Scotsman named William Patterson. After spending some time down in the Caribbean, he settled in Amsterdam, and he took note of the innovative financial practices of the bank there. Practices like issuing banknotes in exchange for bullion, banknotes which could then be used as currency throughout the city. When the Glorious Revolution came, Patterson followed William and Mary back to Britain. There he spent three years developing the Bank of England, which finally opened in 1694. Not only did it issue banknotes like the Bank of Amsterdam, it also lent money to the state. The soon-to-be-combined Kingdom of Great Britain needed to borrow money at low interest rates to build up its army and navy and keep the French in check. Not only did this give rise to Britain's global dominance over other European powers, but in the process, the army and navy spent loads of money on weapons and supplies from British manufacturers and merchants, especially around Birmingham. This has been called war capitalism, and as it grew with paper money, finance grew, and financing of other industrial pursuits came along. Textile mills, coal mines, chemical plants, machine tools, and more. Central banking created the conditions for manufacturing as we know it, while simultaneously stabilizing national politics. Britain was transitioning into a constitutional monarchy. And finally, an Age of Enlightenment was underway. This included political thinkers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, influenced by the battle of ideas in the English Civil War. But it also, perhaps more importantly, included scientific thinkers like Sir Isaac Newton, Robert Hooke, and everyone else in the Royal Society. 
their insights were passed around and, in some cases, adapted in new technologies. And by the mid-18th century, the scientific breakthroughs, availability of capital resources, new uses of natural resources, and general political stability began snowballing into an era of new inventions and scaling up. The Industrial Revolution took off. Despite British efforts to keep this economic transformation all to themselves, other countries actually sent spies there to figure out what they were doing right. By the early 19th century, industrialization had spread to continental Europe and to the new United States. Over the next 200 years, it changed everything, everything about human existence. In the 10,000 years leading up to that transition, the economy would rise and fall with the success of harvests. Our social structures remained unchanged, with a few people leading as kings or warriors or priests. But most of us were getting by as peasant farmers, working craftspeople, or slaves, if not still as hunter-gatherers. Since the Industrial Revolution, we as human beings have changed the way we see romance, healthcare, and politics. We work differently, pray differently, eat differently, and even sleep differently than we used to. We've created megacities with giant skyscrapers. We can get from one side of the planet to the other in just hours. It's even possible that we are simultaneously on the verge of both defeating death with advancements in medicine and the digitalization of consciousness, and defeating life on this planet with a climate crisis and nuclear weapons. I started the Industrial Revolutions podcast to tell this story. Each week, we explore ways our world has transformed over the past 250 years. And we explore the lives and careers of the men and women, the scientists, inventors, engineers, businessmen, bankers, workers, activists, and politicians who gave us this new world. If this is a subject you're interested in, please check out The Industrial Revolutions on whatever app you're using to hear Pax Britannica, or visit industrialrevolutionspod.com. Thank you. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.